You know what those questions are? They are accusations disguised as questions. God, this is your fault. And that's what Adam said too, didn't he? In Genesis chapter 3, right, God gave one prohibition to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what do they do? They eat. And when God comes into the garden and he asks them, he inquires about what you've done, what does Eve say? Well, the serpent made me do it, right? And then Adam says, well, the woman made me do it, but the woman whom you gave me, God, if you hadn't given me Eve, this one that I was just celebrating, by the way, like a chapter ago and singing of one flesh and da, 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 right? I was so excited. But if you hadn't given her to me, I wouldn't have sinned. Right? We're so inclined to assign blame somewhere else, with someone else, even if that someone else is God. But that's not who God is. God's not one who tempts us. God's not one who leads us into evil. I mean, do you hear what James said in verse 13? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You see, what James is telling us is that the problem with our temptation does not reside with God. It resides with us, with you, and with me. The problem of sin and temptation is not with God, it's with our own evil desires. And that is what we have to acknowledge. You see, when we think about temptation, we have to say that it is our temptation, it is our desires. That's where we have to begin. We have to know that it is ours, but we also have to know where it's going to lead. James tells us, right, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, when we hear that language of desire, it'd be easy for us to have this idea that, that we can solve all the problems of temptation and sin if we just kind of rid ourselves of emotion and of desire, generally speaking, right? Like, it, it could be an easy place that we could go. We just take on this stoicism, right? We're like Jedis, like, don't love, don't hate, just kind of live in this kind of neutrality. But that's not what James is talking about because the Bible itself is clear that there are some desires that are good and right. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus desired to eat the Passover with his disciples, and God calls us to desire righteousness and holiness and goodness. So James isn't saying be rid of desires. Generally, he's saying we are tempted when our evil desires lure us and entice us. In fact, this word for desire that's used here most often in the scriptures, in the New Testament, when it's used, it's speaking of an inordinate desire, a desire that is evil, a desire that is wicked, a desire that is dangerous and forbidden, a lustful desire. But here's the thing about our desires, those desires, is that if we saw them that way, it would be easy to flee from them, wouldn't it? But they often don't look dangerous. They often look very, very appealing. I mean, even the language that James uses, right? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. That language of lure and entice, it, it's reminiscent of a fisherman. Right now, I'm not a fisherman. I've been out a couple times. It's fun. It's enjoyable. But, but I really don't know what's biting, right? Like, I don't know what kind of fish it is. It's, it's a fish, so just plop it in. But, but this is what I do know. This, I know it's way more complicated but, than that, by the way. <laughs> 
But this is what I do know about fishing, is that what you put on that hook, you are trying to entice the fish to eat it, right? You are trying to lure it. You want the, the fish to think that that lure on the end of the hook is actually for its good, that it will satisfy its hunger, that it will nourish it. But it's a lie, right? Fishermen are liars. <laughs> they are trying to actively deceive the fish, right? We hope that the fish thinks that it's going to be good so that it will strike. But in reality, that lure is just a disguise because when that fish strikes, it will lead to its own demise. And that's what these evil desires are like. You see, we're enticed into thinking that something is good and desirable, but in reality, it's harmful. You see, the result of sin and temptation is, is that, that the result is death. That's what James tells us in verse 15. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you hear the progression we give in to temptation, the desire is conceived, its conception gives birth to sin, sin leads to death. And so friends, what we have to recognize about sin and temptation is the weightiness of it, the significance of sin. And it's important for us to see that the result of our sin is death because so often we think about it in terms of like, this just isn't that bad. Right? Temptation comes knocking at the door, and what do we think? This really won't hurt. I can entertain it just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. I can think about this thought just a little bit more, right? I can allow my mind to run just a little bit farther. I can, I can click on that site just one more time. I can let my lips flap uncontrollably all that I want because really, it's not going to hurt. It's not that bad. But do you hear how James is telling us that it's actually that bad? In fact, it's far worse than we ever could have thought. Because temptation given into leads to sin and sin leads to death. Friends, that's what we have to see. So that we won't be flirting with temptation, but that we would flee from it. So that's what we know about temptation Right? We know that's ours. We know that it leads to death, but, but as G.I. Joe said, knowing is only half the battle, right? We need to know more than that. If we're going to combat it, we, we need to not just know about our temptation, we need to combat it, we need to fight against it, and the way we do this is by focusing on God's goodness and on the goodness of his glory. So we focus on the goodness of God, and what we see in this passage is his goodness is demonstrated in the fact that he is the creator. Look at verses 16 through 18. James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So James is leading us to see that God's goodness is demonstrated in the fact that he is the creator. And where I get that from is that phrase, the father of lights. Now what's interesting about that phrase is that this is the only place in all of the Bible where this title is used for God. 
But we have other places, particularly in the Old Testament, where God and light and creation are actually kind of joined together. So, for instance, in Psalm 136, we're told that God, who by his understanding made the heavens, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night. And so the psalmist is saying God is the creator of the heavenlies, of the lights. He is the father of lights. And then Isaiah 40, we're told to lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. You see, what these passages are doing is telling us that God's goodness is demonstrated in the fact that he is the creator. That he is the one who hung the sun and the moon and the stars. And he is the one who put this, or excuse me, in the heavens and put the stars in the sky. His goodness is reflected in that he's the creator. But his goodness doesn't stop there. Not just that he's the creator, but he's also the giver of life. He's the life giver. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And so what we have is this contrast between sin and temptation and God. Right? What does sin do? Sin and temptation, it gives birth to death, but God brings forth life. Right? The contrast that is set up, one leads to death, but the other leads to life. One is an imperfect gift, a gift that will bring about our destruction, but the other one brings every good and perfect gift. The gift of eternal life, the gift of new life. And this is what we need. This is exactly what Jesus talked about in John chapter 3 when he said, if anyone is to see the kingdom of God, he will be born again. He will have new life. And in 1 Peter 1, we're told that you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, sin leads to death, but God gives life through his son. Jesus himself went to his death and rose again so that we would have life, so we would turn from the death of sin. And knowing this, why would we flirt with temptation then? Why would we ever even, why would we ever even, even try to go near to it? Knowing the love of God that he has shown to us this new life, why would we ever doubt his word and believe the desires that lead to our death? See, friends, we have to combat that deceptiveness with the truthfulness of God's goodness and of his word, a word that brought forth life that, that's the same word that actually that maintains our life. And so that means, that means that when we're confronted by temptation and sin, we have to replace that temptation and sin with the goodness of God. Okay, we have to go beyond simply not giving in to temptation. I think sometimes we just think about temptation like this, like I'm being tempted, and so I just need to say, stop, right? Don't go there. I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to taste it. I'm just not going to go. And so I'm just going to say stop and kind of live in this neutral ground. But, but actually, if we're going to combat temptation and sin, we have to go beyond that. Because if we only stop at resisting temptation, something is going to fill the void that was left when we said no. So think about it like this. Many of you know I have a very uh, healthy and righteous disdain for weeds in my yard, right? Um, I hate them, I despise them. And so, uh, but 
in my uh, destruction of weeds in my yard, it has left uh, spots in my yard. Um, so I've ripped them up, and I've pulled them, and I've, you know, ripped them up by the root, and I've sprayed them, but, but now I have these spots where there is no weed, which is good, but there's no grass either. There's just void. There's nothing. Now, if I just leave that, right, for the next week, next two, next month, what's going to happen? Something's going to fill the void. And you know what's going to fill the void? Weeds. Yep. That's right. They're just going to keep coming back. They're going to get blown in by my neighbor, right, because he doesn't hate weeds like I do. They're going to get blown in by my, from my neighbor's yard, or they're going to come up from another place in my yard where I haven't seen them. But something is going to fill the void. And so if I want to make sure they don't come back, and I want to make sure that, that weeds aren't filling that void, I need to replace it with something good. I need to put grass. And friends, that's the same that's true with our lives. We can say no to sin and temptation, and that is good. Do not, don't hear what I'm not saying. We have to say no. We have to say stop. We have to flee from it. We have to not touch it. We need to run from it. But we need to take that void, and we need to replace it with the goodness of God. The same word that brought about new life is the same word that maintains us through this life. And so very practically... This looks like if you struggle with sexual lust, you say no to it. You don't click again. But then you replace those desires for lust. You, you replace it with, with true beauty. You fill your minds with true beauty. You start to see others not simply as forms to be consumed by our own desires, but actually image bearers to be treated with dignity. It means that if you struggle with greed, the answer isn't simply to stop buying things and to make, don't make any more money. No, it's to be generous. The way you combat greed is with generosity, right? It means that if you're cynical, you replace cynicism with hope. It means that if you're critical, you stop being critical and you fill your mouth with things that are praiseworthy, making much of things that are good. You see, we combat temptation by replacing temptation and sin with the goodness of God. We focus on his goodness, but also of the goodness of his glory. Look, it's really fascinating to me that in this section, James, before he ever mentions temptation and desire, before he ever speaks of sin and death, he says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, where is he directing our focus? The crown of life. He's directing our focus to heaven, to the glory that will one day be revealed. Now, that is fascinating to me because before he ever talks about the dangers of sin and temptation, he puts before us God's glory, what is promised to us, right? This, this crown that is awaiting us. Now, when we think about the crown of life, we, we maybe uh, think about the Queen Elizabeth, right? And gold and jewels, and it looks so heavy that if she just kind of tilts, like her whole body will fall over, right? That's probably what we think of when we think of crowns. But in this context, it was probably something more like a laurel wreath that would have been given to the winner of a race. And that's how Paul uses this idea of the crown of life and. 1 Corinthians 9, when he says, Do you not know that in a race all race runners run, but only one gets the prize? 
run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. That is beautiful. A crown that will last forever? The crown of life that is bestowed upon all those who are trusting in Jesus? who are placing our hope in the one who has died and risen again, that the conquering king over sin and over death and over the grave, he will one day give us a crown of life. I mean, there is no greater prize than that, is there? So why does James start there? Before he talks about temptation and sin and death, why does he start there with the prize that awaits those who persevere? Well, he starts there because if we are focused on the goodness of glory, if we are enamored with the beauty that awaits us, we will see sin and temptation for what they are. They are counterfeits. They promise life, but they lead to death. They say that they are beautiful, but they are grotesque. When we put sin and temptation next to the goodness of glory, we will lose our appetites for them. reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said in his wonderful essay, The Weight of Glory. He said that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And Lewis was right. We are far too easily pleased. You see, our problem isn't that our desires for sin are too strong. Our problem is that our desires for glory are too weak. See, friends, when we give in to sin and temptation, we are actually settling for the mud pies of the slum when a holiday at the sea is offered to us. And so... So when we see the beauty of heaven, we should reject sin and temptation. We should see them for what they are and resist them and combat them because we know what they truly are. And we combat them by beholding the goodness of God and the goodness of his glory. And so friends, today and tomorrow and this afternoon when temptation comes knocking, know what it is. See it for what it is and throw it back to the slum and cling to God's goodness. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, we do thank you that you reveal to us what we cannot see apart from you. That, that those temptations and desires that look so appealing will really only lead to death. And so we pray that you would help us to resist them, to fight against them, to combat, to go to war with them and to take on your goodness, to take on what is true and right and beautiful, so that we would live all of our days steadfastly pursuing that glorious day when you will bestow upon us the crown of life. Father, help us to do that today and tomorrow and all of our days. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and God's people said together, amen. I'll invite our ushers to come forward and we'll take this morning's tithes and offerings.